Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Hey everyone, welcome this week's guest. Great pleasure to introduce someone, anyone who lives on the eastern seaboard of Australia would be very much familiar with, the great Bill Harrigan. How are you, Billy? I'm going very good, thanks, Ian. Good stuff, best we're getting in lockdown anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know uh, you're no different to anyone else in, in business now with the Tag is not much you can do when you can't even get in the playing field, right? That's right. No community sport and still no light at the end of the tunnel for us. You know, they're saying that um, we might start having a few restrictions eased off in the next couple of weeks, but as far as community sport goes, we've got no idea yet. Yep. 100%, just a wait and see. Um, it's testing our patience, all of us, so we'll, we'll get there. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today. So we were just joking off air about uh, how there is no better memory than the memory of a jaded NRL fan <laughs> saying how you still get people bringing up decisions you made and want to talk about it, and you just said you, you do you get on the front foot and just deal with it straight away. Is that how you deal with most things in life, just get on the front foot? Get on the front foot. You know, if you know there's going to be a problem or if you know there's an issue, instead of lingering in the background, let's just attack it first off. And now, as I said, if I do a guest speak, first thing I do is I go, right, where's the Bowman supporter? Where's the St. George supporter? Because I know the questions that they're going to ask me. Yeah. 89 grand final, 99 grand final. Let's knock it on the head straight away and enjoy the rest of the talk. Yeah, absolutely. Get on with it. Get all, get all your uh, grievances out of the way early. I love it. Uh, what, what I'm most curious about is... So anyone that has this moniker of, of greatness, um, Andy Raymond's interviewing Wally Lewis this week, and I think it might be his first podcast, and he was asking for questions. And, and that's what I said to Andy. I said, well, ask him what it's like living with that moniker. So, so for you, like, how was that? Did that add more pressure? Did you love it as being labelled as uh, not only the best referee in the game at the time, but as your, your career progressed by many people as the greatest referee the game's seen? Yeah, I probably get to languish in a little bit more now that I've, you know, long retired. You sit back and people still come up to me today and say, hey, Billy, we need you back. And I'm going, hang on, have a look at this. I'm, going, I'm graying up. And there's no way that I'd be able to blow a candle out if I was running around in first grade now. But I suppose as the years went by after I retired and I was hearing that all the time, or oh, we need you back, Billy, or you were the greatest referee of all time, you know, you can sit back and bask in the sunlight on that. During the career, especially at the start, it was very difficult to all of a sudden be put into the limelight, um, making decisions and then reading about yourself or copying flack in the media and reading about it all week and then think, boy, I'm only going out here doing something that I really enjoy, something I love, yeah. and yet I'm copying flack left, right and centre for it. And, you know, it's pretty hard to comprehend. 
you get to you find ways to deal with it, like you do with everything in life, and so you start to deal with it. But then the next thing that happens is your your family, your friends, your uncles, aunties, they start suffering because they start copying it from their workmates and their friends because they know that you're a family member or yeah. or a friend, so they give it to them. And that was the most difficult for me to comprehend and probably to take, knowing that family and loved ones were copying flack because of what I did. So how did you manage that? How did you process that when that's out of your control? Yeah, it was out of my control. So as far as um, the relatives and all that, I'm just saying, look, don't worry about it. Do your best. Don't answer it. Don't get involved. Pretty lucky too, a lot of my career I went through without all this social media. There wasn't Twitters and all the Facebooks and all that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, in the first part of my career, it was mainly just heckling and, you know, people getting stuck into them in the office and that sort of thing. I'll tell you a quick story about my uncle, uh, Uncle Terry, lives in Toronto. And he used to go to Newcastle and watch the games all the time, whether I was there refereeing or not, just yep. a fan of Newcastle. And he stopped going because people on the hill got to know who he was. And then if I was refereeing the game and did something, instead of them yelling abuse at me, they start going at him. So wow. he ended up knuckling up a couple of times. And in the wow. end, he just stopped going. So yep. they're the sorts of things that we had to put up with back in the early days. Yeah, and... <laughs> Being one of those NRL fans, not not necessarily abusing some of the sign but but expressing my frustration at the world whenever I went to the footy, I can get that. Uh, but well, no, I get it too. I yell at this. I still yell at the TV now when I watch it. I yell at the, the game. I yell at the referees. I yell at the yeah. bunker referee for taking too long, stuff like that. And so now I, I still get people come up and say, oh, I used to yell at the TV, mate, and give it to you, and I just go, and you wasted your breath, mate. Yeah. You hear yeah. a word you said, but good on you. <laughs> I do it myself now. Yeah, absolutely. So you said that the, earlier in your life, there's a real defining moment where you realised that you were going to make that decision to be a referee. And you said you said it was a moment of fate. So could you tell us more about how that unfolded? Yeah, it was, it was probably more of a moment of fate that led me into refereeing because at that stage, I didn't want to be a referee. So I'm 16 years of age. I go to Fairvale High School in the western suburbs of Sydney. And the New South Wales Rugby League were doing a recruitment campaign for schoolboy referees. Fairvale High School put their hand up, uh, volunteered, and then our PE teacher, who was also the rugby league coach, was in an embarrassing situation. On the Friday morning at assembly, he said, we don't have any volunteers to do this course that we put our hands up for. And we've got this gentleman coming out on Tuesday. We have no volunteers. I will see the rugby league team after this assembly. So the Opens team, we all turn up and he turns around and says, guys, none of you, none of you volunteer. We're all looking at each other thinking, who wants to be a referee? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> and he turned around and said, well, we're in an embarrassing situation. We've already acknowledged we'll do it. They've got a person coming out. No volunteers. So he goes, right, Harrigan, Lees, Gaznier, Smith and Smith, the two brothers, you will do your referee's ticket. I'm standing there going, no way, sir. Not a chance. I'm not going to be a referee. <laughs> And he said, you five will do it, and if you don't do it, you'll sit on the bench for the next five weeks when we play our games. Oh, wow. So he said, done. Stop talking. Go back to your classrooms. That's how I became a referee. I got my schoolboy referees ticket. Um, come home, put it in the drawer. I'll never do that. And then my dad said, what, are you going to take it up? And I went, no way, Dad. I was forced to do it. I will not <laughs> do that. And then he came home a couple of weeks later and said, hey, listen, this is 1976, 77. He said, 
at the local pub where they do all the football club raffles. And he said, the pub are putting in a team in a pub comp. They're going to pay $20 a game, two games on a Sunday afternoon. That's 40 bucks, 1977, equivalent to a first-year apprentice wage. Ooh, are you in? Yeah. And I went, I'm in. Oh, I'm in that. <laughs> so I took that up. And from there, I was seen by an official from Parramatta who said, young fella, I'd like you to come and referee at Parramatta. I started refereeing it. But I said to him, does it pay? And he said, <laughs> I went, right, I'm in. And then one day the defining moment came when I was running around refereeing, just doing it for the pocket money and, and enjoying it. And then this uh, assessor said to me after the game at Ride, I refereed the game at Ride, and he turned around and said, young fella, you've got the ability to go all the way. And I looked at him and said, all the way where? And he went, all the way. And wow. that was the defining moment where I went, first grade. Oh, wow. Okay, here we go. Buckle oh, in. Tingles all through that. That's magic. I love it. Um, backpedal, hang on a sec. You're thrown in at 16 to refereeing pub teams? Yes. Well, you must have some stories from then. I have got some good stories because my mum used to have to drive me to the games. Still yeah. too young to drive. Uh, mum would drive me, and then uh, I'd be referring these guys that are would-be's, could-be's, has-been's, beer guts. Um, I used to drive a ute up with an esky in the back uh, and a keg, all the yeah. ice, and I'd put the keg in the ice and then punch the spear in it, and then they'd be pouring beers into schooner glasses and, and drinking away. So the B-graded play at 1.30, I'd referee that. Then the A-graded play, the guys in the B-grade would get around the ute and start drinking beer watching the A-grade. And I just had blokes giving it to me. And one bloke gave it to me one day and he said, uh, said something to me and I just turned around and said, you've got 10 minutes in the bin. And he went, well, I'm not going. And I went, that's fine. We won't play. And he said, well, I'm going to punch your head in. And I went, you can do that too and you probably will. And we still won't play. And then next <laughs> minute, my mum's there with her umbrella saying, you punch his head in and I'll belt you with his umbrella. <laughs> and then in that game, another bloke gets hurt and they've yelled out and they went, hey, Ronnie. Ronnie's got his scooter and he goes, what? And he says, Jack's down. You've got to come on. And he went, hang on. <laughs> Put the boots back on. On he came. That was the pub oh, call. Fantastic. Good on And that was mom, like a week mate. in, week out thing for a couple of months. And it was a really good background. It was good grounding for me because I'd never refereed footy. And to go in and referee that style of footy, and then you know these guys back, and that was the days of the knuckle. Um, yeah. It was a good learning curve. I'm I'm curious how you had confidence because because I imagine myself at 16 would have gone, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out of here. But you just had the the strength to be able to stand up and just say, well, this is how it's going to be. Were you, were you still shitting yourself at the same time? Oh yeah, yeah, I still absolutely was, and especially when this guy said, "I'm going to punch your head in." Yeah. I'm looking and thinking, <laughs> yeah, he probably would not even think about it. Yeah. Um, so it was scary in that way, but it it was like one of those things where you, th- you know, when they say everyone says, like, "I'm going to throw you in the deep end, sink or swim," it was yeah. pretty much like that. And you know, the forty dollars is dangling there, and I thought, "Yeah, this is unreal." Forty bucks in the skyrocket at seventeen years of age. Yeah. Um, so to get that, I think it was just so quick. Okay, get used to this. But every afternoon, it was always down the park playing footy with all the kids from the street every afternoon. You'd go home, quickly knock your homework over, four to four o'clock down at Peterloo Park, and it's just footy on. 20, 30 kids all turning up, jumping on the teams. And when you're playing in that environment, you start fighting as well. And a couple of times, you know, you've got to throw a couple of fists here and there because you just get into a bit of a punch up over tackles or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's where the confidence and everything come from and then just the discipline that my mum and dad brought me up with. 
Yeah, wow. Uh, I think most people from uh, our generation or older can relate to to that, just being down the park. I, I think I must have been so fit because from the moment you got home from school till till lights out, like we we're just going the whole time. And as yeah, you we say, yeah, no coming home, no iPads, no iPhones, no laptops, no nothing like that. It was do your, your paperwork and then you just could not wait. Mum would say, have you finished? And I'd go, yep. And then you'd always hear your mum, 5.30, 6 o'clock, you know, yelling out and you know, William! Your dinner's ready. Get home. In a minute, Mum, next try wins. Get home now. All that sort of thing. So I think, you know, well, probably most kids or most adults our age when they were kids did the same thing, riding push bikes, skateboards, playing footy in the park. Yeah. Oh, good times. Great times. And uh, as you say, it, it builds certain skill set that we can use later in life. And and I love how you've applied that to, well, you've, you've, you've been in your fair share of scraps, but you, you, you were scared, but you still were prepared to hold your ground. Magic. Yeah. So you said when you were younger, you didn't have any idea about being a um, being an NRL referee as a career, but you did say that there was one point you wanted to be a pilot. Why, yeah, why did that not eventuate? Yeah, wanted to be a pilot, uh, but I was also very sporty. And so at school, you know, I, I went in everything and you would get points. And, you know, I ended up winning the inaugural Sportsman of the Year Award. I won my house sportsman just because, you know, lunchtime sport, I'm into it. Um, playing footy, playing rugby union, soccer, whatever the school was in, I was into it. And I only just pulled out all my report cards because I was cleaning out some drawers and stuff the other day while we're in lockdown and I started reading some of my old reports and, you know, you see maths and it says if William applied himself in maths as much as he does in sport, he would excel. And all the comments were pretty similar. And then we get the PE, A plus, outstanding student or whatever. So I think the physics and the maths took a bit of a hit and you need that to be a pilot. And so once I was doing my HSC, I knew straight up that that's going out the door. And my next one was, okay, well, follow my dad's footsteps and join the cops. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm sure many listening could relate to that that same report card. Uh, I think about my 14-year-old now. He very much has a report card that's, that has that highlight around PE and, and some of the other ones not so much. But he, he does uh, – I'll give him this. He certainly got. He does. He puts in the effort, even if uh, he's not necessarily skill set. It doesn't mean you can't land in a in a place that still gives you so much fulfilment and success, though, right? So I think you're a great shining light for that. So you ended up in the cops. You said that was something you your dad had done. Was it just like, okay, well, I'm not really sure what to do, or like, how did you end up then going down that path of joining the police force? It probably was because I had my heart set on being a pilot, and even to this day, I use that pilot at the uh, plane app. You know, I can point up before the planes all stop, I could say, well, there comes EK413 coming from London, Dubai, Sydney at a certain time and because uh, I still follow planes, still love it. But, yeah, wow. you know, all of a sudden, bang, uh, this is not going to work. What am I going to do? What is my next? So plan B I really didn't have. And then all of a sudden I went, well, my dad's a cop. Why not follow him into the cops? Um, so away I went, got in. A little bit of a story there too with the cops. I went to the recruitment. And back in the day, you had to have a 40-inch expanded chest. You had to stand 5 foot 10, and you had to be 11 stone 7. Well, I just scraped in on the first two, and I had come in at 10 stone 7. And the sergeant recruitment turned around and said, well, son, you failed. You're going to have to go away and put some weight on. And I went, how am I going to do that? Because here I am running around every day and fit as a fit. Yeah. And he said, go home and drink stout, son. <laughs> so I'm 17 years of age. 
says, go home and drink stout, son. So I went to my old man. I just said, this bloke said I've got to drink stout. So he said, okay. So he bought me those big golden sheaf, 740 mil <laughs> stouts. And so every night I'm pouring one of those in. Anyway, I stopped training, stopped running around playing footy and everything for two weeks. I went back to the recruitment, jumped on the scales, weighed 11 stone three. And the old sergeant, same bloke, turned around. He says, ah, oh, he said, you're 11 stone three. You're still short. And I'm going, Sarge, I can't drink any more of that black stuff. It's killing me. <laughs> and he turned around and he said, son, by the time you get to my age, you'll have one of these. You're right. You're in. And I joined the cops and I got in. To this oh, day, I love a Guinness. Absolutely a, love a Guinness. Wow. It's a different world, isn't it? So good. Um it made me think of a story from one of your old mates, uh, the great Bozo Fulton. I'm sure it was Owen Owen Cunningham who uh, same sort of thing. He put him on he put him on the um, the uh, pies and stout diet to put on some weight. So uh, that was obviously the the pretty standard prescription back then for getting people to put on weight. I tell you, it was, but but when I walked out, well, I was shaking my head. I'm thinking, was that sergeant? Did he look at my date of birth? Like I'm still 17. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't far off 18. I said, but I'm still yeah. 17. What's happening here? Wow. No, anyway, but it was, uh, he got me onto it. I drank it. I got into the job and you know, never looked back. Until it was time to do something different. But you said there was another defining moment where, so you're saying that you do training for the, the uh, tactical response group. So there's pretty full on stuff. And you said for one part of it, they use live ammo and there you had a pretty close call. It was, we've, you know, I've gone two years at Central Police Station in general duties, and then there was the new tactical response group, which was called the Riot Squad, but it was really to set up perimeters for SWAS when they came in, or negotiators, if it was a hostage or siege situation, or if it was disturbances on the streets, we would be the first one called. Um, so with this new squad, and I went, and they said you had to be physically fit and it was going to be risky and all this sort of thing, and I've just gone, yep, I'm in again. Uh, so I joined that. And did that for a couple of years, and we were making some training videos. We always made training videos, and we're going into a hot house. And when you go in, and you're doing a training video, you know you've got a cameraman in there filming you as you come in, and then you do the scene again, and he'd film you from behind. And inside were the old pop-up targets, you know, with the bad man there with the gun, or the the lady there as a hostage, and so you don't want to shoot her, that sort of thing. So we've we've gone in with the blanks, and then we're about to do the entry from out the front where the door gets whacked with a hammer and two of us fly in and then the rest. So Peter Gillum's on one side of the door, I'm on the other, wheel one and two through the door. Um, for some reason we used old vests and they weren't the vests that went right down over your hips and had the piece covering your crutch. They were just the old ones that finished up around your belly. And what we found later on is they were bending at the corners and that, that ends up being significant. So. When we do, when we go in and we've got the camera behind us, I said we use live round. So when the live round hits the target, and that's a full solid SG, bang! When it hits it, that's just obliterates. And they wanted that, so it hits the target and goes down. So we do the old one, two, three, bang! As we go in, uh, we both got our guns up, and you bring your gun up to point. Pete brought his gun up to point, and as he did, and your finger is always off the trigger, and as he did, boom! His gun goes off and it hits the door frame right there. Now I've got a gas mask on as well. And it hits the door frame right there and completely shatters the door frame, splinters it. There's splinters, dust, smoke, everything flying all around. 
and we've come to a quick standstill, looked at each other, and then we both just slid down the door to our backsides, took our foul thing and looked at each other and went, what the hell just happened? Um, and then we worked out. When he brought the gun up hard like that, it got caught on the Kevlar vest, which was a Velcro tight, and it was enough pressure like a figure trigger. Um, bang, and it went off, and it was just, it's that far from the head, that solid round. Had it been pellets, I would have copped it all across the face. It was a solid round, but it was that far away from my head. Again, had a quick breathe on and we looked at each other and then we had about a five, ten minute get over that, debrief it, and then we said, right, let's get on with the job and finish this film. That's why we went. <laughs> Again, different world. Yeah. So did you get any counselling after that? No, the counselling was available, but I must say you go back to those days and it's in the early 80s and it was suck it up, mate, toughen up, let's go again. Did away from work though, did that sort of that scene play out in your head again and again? Was there any other not, sort of not again and again to the stage where it really rattled me and everything? Every now and I think about it, and even today I think about it. And I know um, I released a book, my autobiography, in 2003, and obviously that's one of the chapters. And um, you know, when I was writing the book, obviously it brought it up again, and it's sort of it's like a flush goes through me when I think about it. Even now, when I just told that story, it's like a flush that went through me. And I still feel that feeling when I slid, when I slid down the door. And as a little bit of a side issue, I got Peter Gillen to um, launch my book. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. So I said, mate, why not the bloke that nearly killed me? I'm going to launch my book. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we can laugh at it now, but but obviously the, like it looking back and the impact it's still having on your physical body, uh, yeah. yeah, that's why we have counselling now, right? That's Talk right. Things, yeah. That's yeah. what it is because back in those days, any copper will tell you, any footballer will tell you, you get a whack, get up, mate. Suck it up, get up, toughen up. Um, not knowing the impact and the ramifications that that can have on the mind and body, even not then, but later on in life. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that, that's the thing I'm most curious about now. Concussions become a, a big part of, of the issues in well, all sports, really. How much is what you described there? It's the trauma of the actual event as much as it is the physical symptoms. Because as you said, it's still impacting your physicality now. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah. So well, unfortunately, you know, I know I won't name any, but there's quite a few of the footballers that I refereed in first grade back in the eighties, all suffering now. Yeah. 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 So. It's definitely yeah, it will be an ongoing issue and definitely something that needs a much bigger conversation. So it's great that they they finally are. I guess the logical question is around the police force, they must be doing things differently now. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. They've got the counselling, they're doing things, and um, they've got – I think every sport and every business has got things in place now for people yeah. to deal with all sorts of issues, whether they be mental or physical. Mm. To me, the challenge is uh, you can you can uh, lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And it's like I wonder how many men who are still operating that old way, which is uh, just tough it out and get on with it instead of actually addressing it. I know plenty are, which is great. Um, but yeah, I just I wonder whether there's still a gap there. Yeah, I, I think in probably places that aren't policed as much, there would be. I know in the NRL, there's not because anyone cops a knock or anyone is suffering from anything, they have people there looking at them all the time identifying it and saying, mate, you're in here. Yeah. And they don't, they don't get the opportunity to say, no, I'm okay, mate. They're going, no, you're not. You're coming in here. 
Oh, I meant from more of a um, emotional and and mental side of things, like oh, yeah. how much of yeah that that side of things. So you went through that. You were happy to keep going uh, in the police force at that point. But what was what changed? When did you go from there to like, well, actually, I can make a career out of being a referee? Um, well, from TRG, I spent a lot of good years. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. But then I transferred over to SWAS, Special Weapons and Operations Section. So similar, but um, Special Weapons and Operations Sections were really the guys that went through the doors when there was um, building entries early in the world. TRG did it, and it was a part of our job, but we were mainly primitive for SWAS and everything. So two different squads. Um, with similar roles. And so I transferred over with another mate to SWAS, but in particular went into the witness protection unit. And so I was in there and when I got my sergeants, um, you know, I was mainly then doing the admin and running jobs with my staff going out and doing witness protection, you know, providing witnesses at court, protecting them, changing our IDs, relocating, all that sort of thing. Uh, And then while I was doing that, I also decided to become a negotiator. So I started the training of the um, negotiations and then ended up being one of the police negotiators on call-out. And so I did many jobs on that, Harbour Bridge, The Gap, those sorts of things. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and then at uh, 95, 1995, Super League, there was a Super League war between the ARL and Super League, and Super League come and approached me with, along with a couple of other referees and made an offer where I thought it's very difficult juggling the job and the high-pressure job that I had, and it was taking a toll on my family life, and then the refereeing because it was really a job in itself and most people saw that as that should be your priority, yet it, it was my secondary. Cops was my priority. And because of all that, um, things were starting to really push and pull on me and I had to make a choice. Now, if Super League hadn't come along, I was getting close to retirement because it was having an effect on my family life. Yeah, wow. And then... Um, when Super League came along, they said, this is full-time, Bill. We want a five-year contract, um, you know, that, that wasn't as financially rewarding as what the players and everything were getting. Refereeing never has been, but it was still the enjoyment of the job. It was thinking, okay, I can concentrate on refereeing. I can put all my energy in that and be the best that I can be. Leave that behind. Um, even though it was a great career, 18 years, but I'll leave that behind and just concentrate on this, and that gives me more free time with the family and everything. And so that's the, that's the choice it was. So in 1996, I went on three years leave without pay from the cops. And then in 1999, obviously retired, resigned, and became a full-time referee from 96 onwards. Wow. So even in the late 80s, early 90s, you're still just part-time and you're working full-time. Yeah. yeah well, I had like- some times where I was working in the tactical response group, always four in the big you know land cruisers that we had with all the gear in the back. And there'd be, remember the old Wednesday night National Panasonic Cup, Leichhardt Oval? Yeah. Well, I remember one night I had a job, I had a refereeing appointment. We were working and the boys said, we'll get you there, Bill, don't worry about it. And we got a job over at Lane Cove. And I'm sweating it because we're at this job and I'm going, boys, I've got to get to, Le- I've got to, get to Leichhardt Oval. Come on, come on. Anyway, they go, we'll get you there, we'll get you there, Bill. So it was running very late, but in the end we had blue lights flying to get across Laysville Bridge and now the back way to get to Leichhardt Oval. And we got there with about 20 minutes to spare. And I remember running in and big Eric Cox was standing at the door and he's, where the bloody hell have you been? And at the time I'm taking my gun belt off, giving it to my sergeant, running past, giving my hat and batting to Eric Cox. Said, get out of my way, I've got to get dressed. Got dressed. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I'm out on the field refereeing the game. 
that's what it was like. And that's that was the juggling. Just, just normal. Of, Juggling the cops and fitting in the referee and refereeing you're putting in, you know, I was putting in probably 20, 25 hours a week training, plus my 40 hours a week in the cops. So, uh, and then, you know, fit a family and we have two young boys. Yeah. That's, wow. Hmm. I, sorry, I was just bringing up the um, the Panasonic Cup. I made this my ringtone a few years ago, the, the Panasonic Cup, um, the Wednesday night. Hey, what a great, back, 10? great flashback. Um, so I love that you got the police escort and, uh, and you still made it there. But again, I'm sure players had stories like that too, where it was just like, well, we're part-time, we've got to work, we've got to go through all those different elements. Like, no wonder yeah, it was they taking toll. So, so Yeah, they did. And back in those early 80s, you had uh, Charlie Haggett from Manly, Mal Cochran Manly, Paul Sirenen, uh Donnie McKinnon at North Sydney, Kevin Roberts, a referee who was also a cop. Um, Sean Hanstead, Paul Simpkins, cops a little bit after, like, come a couple of years after me when I first went in. We're all the cops and we're all juggling. Everyone was juggling and it wasn't until I think the early 90s and then especially when Super League came along that everybody went full time and that became your career. And so all of a sudden you, you gave away the cops and everything and you started concentrating on that. And I think that was probably one of the defining moments for a refereeing and – Excuse me, because you'd see the referee out there and you're ex- the, the expectation is I want perfection from this bloke. Knowing we can never give you perfection, but we will strive to give you as close as we can. But supporters wanted perfection from us because in their head, that was my job. That was my thing. They don't, they don't take into consideration that I might have just come off a hostage and seat situation or negotiated somebody jumping off the bridge or something like that, bang, straight into a game, things still playing in my head, trying to clear that, you know, concentrating it at the back and then jump into 100% concentrating on this game and giving the best that I can for the players, their teams and and the fans. And that was my goal, to do the best that I could so I could walk off and say, done my job, did the best that I can and I'm happy with that. I couldn't have done any better. And if I, if I achieve that, then I, regardless of what the two different supporters thought, as long as I know I come off and went, I've given everything. There's nothing left to give. That was the best performance that I could give. I've done my job. Yeah. I'm, yeah, to me, I'm astounded. Like, how did, well, was it just natural that you had the, that ability to absorb so much pressure? Because we're talking like, okay, maybe people think that pressure of being that referee and that sort of pressure, but we're talking about before that, during the day, dealing with the pressure of someone's life is in your hands. How did you have an ability to process and and keep moving forward through all of that? I think it was just over time, I mean, a learning experience where – uh, cops will tell you that, and, and I probably ambos and doctors and nurses all tell you, when you see situations where there's major trauma, um, accidents, just situations that can really have a big impact on you, we can't, we, um, we just have this ability to put up a wall, um, you know, departmentalise it sort of thing, put it aside, shut it out and go again. And don't have to bring that back up again. And uh, and sometimes you'll see cops make fun of things or you'll see cops or nurses joking where someone might be lying in a bed, you know, just about gone in a, in a very dire situation. Their family is just sitting out in, in the waiting room and you see the doctor and nurses having a bit of a laugh and things. 
it's that outlet. It's a release because you can't really get emotionally involved with it or it'll rip you apart. And so we had this ability um, to just put up a wall. And it, it didn't come when I first started. It wasn't there. It was something that you built up over time just from experience and the things that were happening um, in your life where you just went, well, i got to learn from that. I can't do that again. Bang, you just put another couple of bricks in the wall. And, and that's what you did. And, I, and I've seen in some instances it builds up that much that mates of mine who have been the cops end up then going out medically unfit because they've done that for so long and all of a sudden explode. Yeah. Um, and then others have just been able to, to handle it. And I think that's what I did. I just went, right up. I finished that job. Um, I remember, you know, talking somebody off the gap. I went home, got a couple of hours sleep, and then bang, I had to head down to Brookvale Oval to referee a game. It's that ability to sort of go, right, finished, stop, gone. This is new. Let's go. Yeah, wow. Um, a gift, clearly. Uh, great question from the uh, audience. Jen has asked, how have you disassembled those walls? Because when we put up walls, they often are there for good. How have you then wound back, taken them apart, as Jen's rightly pointed out, disassembled them since having to deal with all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I, I think one of them is not letting it all stay inside. I've talked about it. I've certainly talked about it with my wife and friends and other cops. Um, so certainly letting it out and discussing it. And I, and I think that gives me a, a fair release on things. Like I've, I've told that story and spoken about the time when Pete Gillum, you know, almost took my head off accidentally. Um, and then I've had the, the bike rides at Bathurst where, again, with Georgie Thompson, um, we went within a couple of feet of being really badly injured or killed up at Bathurst. Um, so things like that, I think just by that talking about it, letting it out, and then as I said at the start of the show, I'm, I'm a firm believer in fate. Things are meant to happen in life. I know we've got this, we can talk about destiny and you can change your destiny and all that sort of thing. I, I'm a believer in fate where I just think, yeah, that's meant to happen and that was going to come across my pathway. Now i just got to deal with it. And I think that has a bit to do with it as well. Oh, man, I've got tingles through that as well. And that ability to then go, okay, well, this is part of my destiny, then I'll just have to deal with it best I can. Uh, yeah. Hearing this story now from everything that you went through and everything that you've overcome, it just makes so much sense and how the refereeing, you were just able to navigate that from the outside looking in with just ease because if this is only football, like you've dealt with life and death, like some days on the day of the game, um, yeah, wow. I think too, Ian, I loved it. I loved both my jobs. Um, I was good at both my jobs and I loved it and passionate about it. And I think that that also, I, I hate to get up in the morning and go off to a job that I wasn't really happy with and just slug it out. I think that would probably tear me apart more than having to deal with all those situations because I just love the job. You didn't love seeing things. You didn't love going to accidents. You didn't love seeing people, you know, in trauma and that sort of thing. But I still just love my job, that part where you're helping people and you're doing good things and, and then refereeing. Um, I love the game and I, was, I played footy and I was, a, you know, an all right footballer, but I was never going to be a first-grade footballer. And so here I am. I remember running out in that in my very first State of Origin game, and it ended up being Wally Lewis's last State of Origin game in 1991. I was a kid sitting at home watching Wally Lewis with my yeah. dad, and you know, thinking, "Come on, New South Wales, knock him over, hit that bloke." But then also looking at him and saying, "How good is this bloke? 
this is fantastic. He is the best rugby league player in the world. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm running out in the field. I'm doing the coin toss with Wally Lewis. I'm looking and thinking, oh, how good is this? Wow. I'm out here with Wally Lewis, who I've looked up to and I think is the best player in the world, and there I am about to referee with him. Fantastic. They're great memories. Yeah. The, the thought that comes to mind is how did the next generation of referees then deal with that when when they are you're still either you, you're still there refereeing or when you actually were working helping coach the referees were they having those same moments do you think of like a little bit in awe of like well how can I live up to that someone who's been labeled the greatest I think so <laughs> sometimes I, I, I would probably I'm very good mates with Stephen Clark and Timmy Mander and they're both very very good referees and they just came through the same era as me. Um, if I wasn't there, they're refereeing grand finals and state of origin matches. Yeah, well. So you know, I look at them sometimes and think, oh, timing, it's all about timing. But, you know, meant to be. Um, yeah. So they had to follow in my shadow. And you do see that in – even today, you see some referees that are very good and you just think, oh, he is a very good referee, but that bloke there in front of him is just keeping him out of the spots. Otherwise – he would be the kingpin, and he's just been kept out of it. And, yeah, I did. I, I'd see young referees come up and just sit in a room and you see their eyes when you go, oh, wow, Bill. And I just went, okay, I'm just a bloke, and I'm going to do the best I can to teach you how to be just as good, if not better than me. Let's go. I love that. Yeah, 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 love that. Put the boots on and let's go. Here we go. No ego. You want them to be actually better than you. Uh, I love that. And yeah. I think you've touched on something really powerful there around – doing what you love it's easy easy to be able to process whatever you're going through when you love when you love it because it's like well what's the alternative going and yeah. doing something else you said that'd be much deal harder to deal with and i think that's a great lesson for everyone finding what you love in in whether it's the job you're doing now or with a, an idea to be moving towards something that you do i think the positive thing too and, and you know i used to run across the, when i lived at bondi when i was just breaking into first grade i used to get up at 4 a.m because i had to be at work at six and I was doing 12-hour shifts those, back in those days, um, transporting the, the – or escorting the bikey truck out to Penrith wow. after the military massacre. Yeah. And the the bikies were going from Long Bay Jail to Penrith for court every day. And part of our TRG job was to escort them. So I had to be at the office at 6, Long Bay Jail by 7, escort the van out to court, escort it back, back to the office, get back out the Bondi you know, 12, 14-hour turnaround every day. Where am I going to train? When am I going to fit this in? So some days I took my training gear to work with me to the court, and if I was got the lunch hour off, I'd run the streets of Penrith. But other days, every day, I'm up at 4 a.m., and I'm building a – I know it's 900 metres from one end of the promenade to the other, and I know every crack in it, running under those lights in the middle of winter and cold. Um, but again, because I loved it, it was easy to spring out of bed and say, right, I've got to do this because I love this job and I've got to stay fit to do it and be the best that I can. Compared to if you didn't like the job, you know, you're waking up and going, oh, I've got to get out of bed and go to this. I just have five more minutes. And it wasn't for me. It was bounce out of bed, let's go. Yeah, love it. Uh, and I know that even with people who love what they do, that bounce out of bed thing is not everyone's uh, ability. So, Clearly, you needed to be able to have that ability to go through working both of those jobs to be able to do a fantastic job of both of them. There's a question here from from Troy, who's watching. Um, he says, uh, "Yeah, what was the advantage of of those skills from the police force 
to then be able to deal with players? Oh, Troy, huge. Um, first and foremost, I've got the discipline from my mum and dad growing up and obviously that mingling with all the kids around the street playing park footy and all that sort of thing. But then when I joined the cops and my refereeing career in cops sort of ran uh, concurrently, parallel, it was the discipline in the cops in TRG. Um, when you're working with a cop in the TRG or SWAS, he's got your back. I have to have 100% trust in that bloke. He has to have 100% trust in me. How do we earn that trust with each other? Discipline. He knows that I know my job 100% and will perform under any circumstance. And I know he will too. So he's got my back. He's got my life in his hands. So there's discipline there. When you go to refereeing, there's also discipline. Also in the refereeing, in, um, in the cops, it was communication, how I communicated with people, how I spoke to people. And one of the things from my mum and dad is always speak to people the way you would like to be spoken to back. If you don't want to be yelled at, don't yell at them. If you don't want a finger pointed at you, don't point at them. So I think you put all that, so the communication in the cops, and especially when I become a, tra a trained negotiator, um, the skills that I learned while I was training to be a negotiator also helped me on the field. And I look, I look at sometimes now the referees, they've all been taught to say the same thing, and it's very stereotyped. Yeah. In that situation, you say these five words. In that situation, you say these five words. Back in our day, it was you say what you need to to get the job done. Yeah. And I think that's where we lack of a lot of that today, that little bit of a charisma, um, the referee's ego. We've all got egos. The referee's ego out there, his characteristics and his charisma on how to handle and the way he can communicate. And if you can say something to a player and get more out of him, than what these barking five words would be, well, which one are you going to take every day of the week? Unfortunately, oh, they can't these days. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a good question. They they ran parallel and I got a lot out of it from my cops transfer and a lot of my refereeing stuff I took into my cops as well. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so much from that. The first thing that comes to mind is uh, it's what the crowd wants too. They want like the bunkers taking away the – the personality of the the referee, their their actual influence in the game, they can't go and like trust their natural instincts to to be themselves and have those conversations. And you put it so well, is like, well, ask them a question, get them to speak. That way, you have to say less words, and then it's so much easier to give them a voice. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, I refereed, yeah. I refereed Ian with five meters, ball in the middle of the scrum, marker can strike for the ball, wipe them all out. 10 metres, in-goal touch judge to video referee bunker. So I saw the whole lot. Um, the thing with the bunker today, it's relied on too much. Refereeing is about decision-making. It's about confidence breeds confidence. And if you're confident and you make decisions and you're getting them right, what happens? Chest comes out, you get pumped up because you're making great decisions, you're getting them right, and your confidence is so you Decision-making is like that, bang, bang, bang. If you erode that confidence, the decision-making starts to go. And when that happens in a game of rugby league, which is so quick, the moment's gone. You're languishing behind and you're trying to catch up and you're making mistakes and you don't look like you're this on the game, bang, 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 bang. And that's the difference. Um, the bunker, absolutely we need it. We do need it because when you see the athleticism of some of these wingers, and how they reach out and put that ball down, and there is a, oh, a centimetre in it. And I, I, we saw a try the other last weekend, I think, where there was a 
kick put through, play group now, come up, put it down, and it was an inch off the dead ball line. It reminded me of the Mark McGaw State of Origin in 1987. 87. At Lang Park, 87 Lang Park. Uh, Mark McGaw chasing that kick through, belting the ball down that far. No video referee, no in-goal touch judge, mixed stone making a, a decision. That's what confidence does for you. Gut feel, confident, bang, try, proves to be correct. Every now and then you might get it wrong, but because you've, you're doing it all the time, it's very, very – and you put yourself in the best position to be there, and that comes down to being fit – and getting over around the field. But when you're making those decisions, and again, that's something I just feel lacks a little bit this year, although in the last 10 years or so, um, that they're not building around, they've got to send everything up, and it just eroded their confidence a little bit. So I'd love to see the referees come back with that. Wow, yeah. where were we? Oh, no, this is good. Uh, I think you kind of answered Mark's question, which is which is exactly around that, the um, impact of the bunker. Um, I want to know uh, how you would have dealt with the second greatest referee. I think you back on that, Ian, just for Mark. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of these that yell at the TV now because I get frustrated when I see a clear-cut try. And, and I don't – because you've got to remember, when we see the clear-cut try, we're seeing it from the camera angle. So wherever that camera is, we're seeing that angle. The referee's not seeing that angle. He's in a different spot. So you've got to look to where the referee is and say, okay, where's his spot? What angle is he seeing? Is there a player in front of him? Um, is he got himself in a really good position? Is he in a poor position? What I do straight away when I see the try, I look and think, right, where was he? What was his view? And if I see him there with a great view, I get frustrated just like everybody else and go, oh, because you just killed the moment. Yeah, just give the it. Moment, the moment is touch, judge, touch, judge, bang. We go... And your moment's gone. That yeah. killed. Yeah. If he's not in a good position or it's one of those winger tries, absolutely check it. You've got to check it because this much in it, you know, split second. But it just frustrates me when I know they're right there. They're looking right at it. And you go, what are you doing? And that's that confidence that's been eroded because they've been told you've got technology, check it all the time. So the bunker is worthwhile, but it's overused. Yeah, okay, great answer. And I think most league fans will agree with that. Um, I've got a question, uh, but a little bit tongue-in-cheek. How would you have dealt with the second greatest referee the game's ever seen, Cam Smith? <laughs> uh, you know, when I was doing the Triple M, um, I was on Triple M for seven years, and they asked me that. We are doing a Storm game one day, and he was there, and they said, how would you deal, Dan Ganeta, and I said, Billy, how would you deal with Cameron Smith? And I said, he would be getting 10 minutes worth of splinters in his backside. <laughs> I'm sitting on the bench. I <laughs> uh, love it, love it. Uh, but he he was, uh, yeah, he was so he good at so it. many different areas, including negotiating. Right? Exactly. Why wouldn't you do it? If if I can do it, if I can bluff you, if I can get away with it, if I can intimidate you, and yeah. many players have tried it, um, you know. But if I can intimidate you, Bill, I'm going to intimidate you. Gary Freeman played for Balmain, Kiwi. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kiwi captain, halfback. I called him the cattle dog because you see cattle dogs are always nipping at the heels, always just they don't leave your lane. Keep, keep going. Even when you know, get out of it, they still keep nipping away. I called him the cattle dog because every time I had him, he would come out and he would test me and he would keep at me, at me and at me, and I'd turn around and go, Gary, why do you keep doing this? And he goes, Billy, I don't know if you had a late night, you're on the grog, the baby kept you up, uh, you had a bad day at work. He said, so I'm going to have a crack at you every time because – if it works, I'm going to get something. 
And I went, okay, deal. But when it doesn't work in the first five or ten minutes, can you just lay off? Because it ain't going to work, mate. I'm going to go bang every time. It's not frustrating. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Can, could you tell me, because I want to I find out more about some characters and how you dealt with them, but I, I'd love to hear, what, what was your greatest moment as an NRL, NRL referee? Um, twofold. One on the field, uh, being appointed to the 1989 Grand Final, Balmain versus Canberra, extra time. Uh, some say greatest Grand Final of all time. I had not refereed a third grade or a reserve grade Grand Final. That oh, was, so was your very first. Wow. Very first one. And I actually knocked off Mick Stone, who had done the last three in a row. So I really thought that they would give it to Mick just for his, his experience, and it was the decision that they could make. And then if Mick, they could say, well, he's the most experienced, he's just done the last three grand finals. Or if he refereed that game and didn't do a good game, they can say, well, hang on, he was our most experienced referee. And they would get away with it. But Dennis Braybrook, you know, the man up there, I just always say thank you very much. Again, a defining moment, fate, and taking it to John Quayle and saying, this young bloke, um, and, and by that time I think I'd only had um, two, three seasons of, of rugby league, first grade under my belt, so still very inexperienced compared to these other guys, the Mick Stones and the Kevin Roberts, and he said, this bloke's the best referee at the time, he's got to get the game. I sometimes think, boy, if somebody had to come to me as the boss and said that to me, and I'd be going, he hasn't refereed a third grade, he hasn't refereed a reserve grade. Boy, we're, we're really going out on a limb here. Um, but they did. So, And because that game then went to extra time and it was such a great game, that's probably one of my greatest moments. And the other one, I used to go up to Papua New Guinea and referee during the Super League ARL war when we weren't refereeing. We were stood down. Yep. And we were waiting for the Super League competition to get started. I'm in Mount Hagen refereeing Chimbu versus Mount Hagen, Parramatta versus Penrith, locals, rivals, St. George versus Cronulla. And we're in Mount Hagen. There's about 4,500 people. It's just an old paddock, a little rickety um, stand, grandstand. And when I say rickety, about five or six wooden levels high. And they're all up there and they love their footy. It's They're passionate about it. It is their national sport. Mount Hagen. Down 28.30, minutes to go. Ball goes out the back line. Last pass is forward. As the winger catches it, I'm blowing the whistle for a forward pass. He dies over in the corner, scores a try. 32.28 if I allow it. They will win the game even without the kick. I'm standing up, and the crowd is cheering. And, and next minute I hear him start going, kill him, kill him, kill him. Shit. And I am absolutely essing myself. We put a scrum down, ball goes in, comes out, there's a tackle made, they ring a bell, like an old cattle bell. Full time, I reckon out of that 4,500, 3,000 jump the fence and come running onto the field. And I thought, I am dead. I am dead, <laughs> gone. Two blokes come in and hit me in their thighs. I started belting them like that. More come up. Next minute, they've hoisted me up on their, on their shoulders and they're cheering them off. And what I thought when they were going, kill him, they were going, Billy, Billy, Billy. <laughs> and they chaired me off to this rickety little stand where some of the dignitaries and that were. And I'm standing, I've gone from absolutely thinking I was a dead man to a rock star. <laughs> oh, how good is this? And then to get, there was no change rooms or anything. We had to go back to our hotel. And I'm sitting in the back of like a, a flat top, tabletop uh, ute. 
and we're going back down the hill, back down from the fields to the thing, and they're all walking out, and they're beside him. We're shaking hands and, you know, high-fiving and having a bit of a laugh, and it was just a defining moment. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Because when we talk about love the game, like – that's their national sport. They, they love it at levels that I think we can't really comprehend, right? I still, yeah, I still get, I get emotional when I think about it. So it was brilliant. So good. That's oh, probably wow. the best moment in rugby league for me. Yeah. Oh, I could imagine. <laughs> I love how you started belting him into them until they re- you're well, in And when I asked them later on, I went, I thought you guys were saying killing because I made that forward pass. They, they love, like the rugby league players, when they, when they go, the Australian team lands up there. There's 15,000 at the airport waiting for them. They just yeah. love them so much and because they see us on TV. Um, you you're just goddess to them. You're, you're a god. And even though I was a referee, you know, because I was a well-known referee, and to be up there refereeing their club game, you know, they they were just going, Bill Hadigan, Bill Hadigan refereeing that, unbelievable. And so you know, it doesn't matter what decision I did and which team it went against. It was just Billy, Billy. Oh mate, that is awesome. All time. If we get back to NRL days, was there was there a moment where you wish you'd done something different? Was there a moment where that really sticks in you that doesn't quite sit right? Is there is there another moment like is there, is there anything that sort of I don't know if regrets the right word, but look back at and think, well, that I would have had my time over, would have done it differently. Probably probably not regrets. One thing I do. I didn't know at the time. And again, it goes back to the 1989 grand final. And it just shows you how fickle things can be. Because had something gone a little bit different in this story I was about to tell you, I might not have gone on the referee another nine grand finals. I might not have gone state of origin or anything. In that 89 grand final, if you go back and you think about the Benny Elias field goal and he hits the crossbar and bounces back, at the time, when he took that snap field goal, it was like, like that, and then bang. And then it's like, wow, what happened? Play on. It wasn't until the Monday when I sobered up, because I had a I had a big day after that as well, like the Mad Monday, and I watched my tape, because back in the end it was the old VHS tape, and I was watching my tape. And when I was going through the game, when Benny Lice takes that snap field goal, the cattle dog, Gary Freeman, is in front of him. Two blokes jump up for the ball. The first one to touch it's Gary Freeman. He's offside. That should have been a penalty to Canberra. Yeah, but right. fortunately, Gary Freeman, when he touched it, he couldn't hold it. The ball came down. A Canberra player jumped on the ball. I think um, Bradley Clyde or someone dives on the ball. And then, you know, I said, zero, play on. And they ran it out down the field. So no harm done. But if Gary Freeman had have caught that ball and thrown the ball out, and they had gone in and scored a try or something, and if my touch judges didn't pick it up or tell me, and I award a try, wow, that would have been the worst decision of the century. Yeah, right. Could have changed my whole career. Could have changed everything. So, you know, I go back and I have a look at that mistake, and I know why I made it. It was like bang, 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 and your head was disorientated, and it was like, wow, play on. And I just think that was very fortunate, very fortunate. So if you could go back... Even though Balmain wouldn't want to go back and see that ricochet come back again, because if that had gone over, they would have won that game. Um, I would have loved to have reeled a penalty for offside. Yeah, there's so many stories from that uh, grand final which we don't need to go into now, but uh, that's one that I hadn't heard before. So that's yeah, wow. You could have changed the, the whole course of many different things. Massive. Yeah, sure could. 
Um, another question from the audience. Uh, an Ellery Hanley fan from Wigan, uh, wanting to know your thoughts on um, that uh, when Ellery fell down and hit his head on the ground in the in the '88 Grand Final. Yeah, I was standby referee at that one. Yeah, so I'm in the gear on the sideline um, watching that, and it was a very unfortunate fall, wasn't it? It was a little bit it to do was. with Terry Lamb. Yes, um, Terry Lamb didn't miss him, and boy. You know, if you did that, well, that happened in 1999 when I did the grand final of St. George and, and um, uh, St. George and Storm and Jamie Ainsco absolutely walloped Smith, Craig Smith. You see something like that, it's just bang, you've got to do something. And, un- you know, unfortunately for Elliot Hanley and uh, and the, the Tigers, uh, you know, they got away with that one. Canterbury never should have, and Terry Lamb never should have got away with that because he didn't miss him, he got him a beauty. Yeah. And talking about Henry Hanley, uh, I was over refereeing in the UK and in Super League, and I did a game between Leeds and Featherston at Featherston. And again, they are passionate about their rugby league at Featherston too. And I gave Ellery Hanley an eight-point try. Uh, he got clipped as he was putting the ball down, and so I awarded an eight-point try. They won that game. I'm pretty sure it was 30-28. Oh, wow. And that meant Featherston were relegated the following season. And I'm standing back while the kick was coming and everything, and I got whacked in the elbow, and then I started having a look. They were throwing pound coins at me. Oh, and they were like missiles hitting, it, you know, hitting all around me. I didn't have time to pick them up, but I got whacked by one of them in the elbow, and it certainly stung. And that was, uh, and then we went back into the boardroom to have drinks, which they do over there. The referees always go back to the boardroom, they mingle, and they let the fans in. So they did the speeches and everything, and they opened up these doors and let the fans in. Well, boy, didn't I cop it. They were ropeable and they've come in and let me know. No one said, to my touches and said, come on, let's get out of here and go down a pub down the road. And they went, mate, we're in Featherston. We're not hanging around here. They'll kill you down there. They'll lynch you. So we went back to Leeds and had a beer in Leeds where it was safe. Mm, wow. Man, you've, uh, you've dodged bullets many times over this career. And uh, <laughs> there's... there's um... We've got another six hours, then. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking that. There's so many more things I want to ask. You talked to, you talked about destiny a number of times. How did your path go from well? Actually, before we go there to Oztag, when you retired from being a professional referee, did that leave a large hole in your life? How did you deal with that? Yeah, it did. I always said that I would go out on top before I got knocked off the top, and I refereed that two thousand three grand final. That was early October. I had every, I'd have been appointed to the Kangaroo Tour and I had every intention of coming back in 2004. And I'm thinking at that stage, one, maybe two more years and then I'm out. I want to still get off the top before these young blokes come and start knocking me over, which, you know, they were already coming for me. And so it was going to be inevitable. So it was all about the timing. And then, again, things fall into place. Matty Johns was at 2SM, got a contract with Channel 9, had to leave 2SM. 2SM rang me up and said, would I like to do the Saturday afternoon gig, 12 to 5.30 with Cameron Williams? And at 4 o'clock, the big man came on for the last hour and a half. And I said, that'd be great. But because I was an employee of the league, the NRL, I had to get permission. So I went to get permission off them, and they turned around and said, no, conflict of interest. And I'm saying, well, it's off-season. We're going to talk about basketball, motor racing, horse racing, the Rugby Union World Cup. Yeah, we'll talk a bit of league, but boy, you know, and it's only for six weeks. 
as the running. And I said, not only am I doing four weeks because I've got to go to the Kangaroo Tour. And David Gallup said, no, I'm not going to let you do it. And I was tired. I wasn't recovering as well from training and all that sort of thing. I'm getting a little bit older, but I ended up finding out I had a, a medical thing with a thyroid. Um, but, and I dealt with that for years not knowing, and I was wondering why I was getting tired, not recovering as well. And, um, and in the end, and also I had written my book ready for release, and they weren't happy with it, yet there was nothing in the book that was explosive, nothing that was going to rock the NRL. It was just my story like we've been talking today. And in the end, I walked downstairs and I discussed it with my wife and I just went, I've had enough. I'm out. And I rang up um, David Gallup. He said, what's up, Bill? Would you forget something? And I just said, can you set a press conference for three o'clock? Oh, I'm retiring. Done. That was it. Pulled the pin. So if you had to stop me that morning when I was having a run and said, you're going to retire this afternoon, I would have said, you're stupid. No way. <laughs> you're right. Things just fell into place and I just went, you know what? I've had enough. 12 months later, I find out that I had a thyroid problem still on medication today for it. Um, that contributed to me not recovering and being tired all the time and just had enough. And I thought, you know, I'm on top. I'm always going to go out on top. No regrets. Love it. Love it. So good. And the ability to make decisions like that, like even when you started your refereeing, when it's like, okay, here it is. It's paying this much. Yep, I'm in. And then and then on that day, like we're talking hours to decide to get out, um, strength of conviction, that's amazing. Yeah. I always like to be decisive, make it quick like that. Bang, it was quick that day. Is there anywhere in your life where you're not as good at being decisive? Yes. Sometimes I do deflect decisions when they're just uh, decisions about whether we're going to go to that restaurant or that restaurant or whether we're going to sit home and watch that movie or that movie. And I turn around and say to Leslie, what do you want to do? And she goes, well, what do you want to do? And I go, I've made decisions all my life. I don't want to make this one. <laughs> you make it. We go to that restaurant, fine. We have Chinese or Thai. I don't, I don't care. What movie are you going to watch? I don't care. Oh, so so there's big ones like that. Big pressure. You're all over it. The, the yeah. day-to-day, yeah, no, I can't do it. Day-to-day, yeah. I don't know. What sort of car are we going to buy? I, I don't care. <laughs> do your wife's head in. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it does. She just says, I don't want to make that decision, Bill. You make it. I go, no, I really don't want to. You make the decision. I'm happy with that. I love that from the audience choices. Just go to the bunker, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just going to indulge myself here with some NRL questions. Who was the best player you ever refereed? You mentioned the King. Was there anyone better? I think the King, and as far as ability goes on a field and seeing what he could do, is Andrew Johns. Um, Now, I know he's polarised the community. Some say... They like him. Some say they don't, and some bring up other off-field issues and all that sort of thing. I just looked at him on the field. There was there was games, like for instance, there was four weeks between two games where Cronulla played Newcastle. They played them. Four weeks later, again, they played them again. When you have a look at the scores of those, in one of the games, Cronulla flogged them, fifty something, forty something, and in the other game, Newcastle did the same thing. Andrew Johns played in both. But I remember in the one game when Cronulla, I'm looking around thinking, is Johnsy on the field? Where is he? He's there. He was quiet. He wasn't his dominating self and he wasn't leading like he did in the game four weeks earlier. And I had to referee both those games. Yeah, wow. Um, there was just sometimes I would see him do things. And one of my classic stories, um, we're in Auckland. Newcastle has scored. The game is now beyond doubt. There's only minutes to go. 
you would normally award the try and I go back around 25, 30 metres in line with where they scored and wait for the player to come and line his kick up. I'm walking back. My trainer comes out with my water bottle. I'm having a drink. I'm having a chat with him. And then I've turned around and I've had a look and Johnsy is 10 metres out from the try line setting up. And his trainer's going, Billy, come here, come here, come here. And I went, what's he doing? And we're only about two or three metres in from the sideline. Oh, what's he doing? He goes, come and watch this. And I went, is he going to take the shot from there? And he goes, yep, you watch what he does with his kick. And I went, ah, oh, get out. Not a chance, Johnsy. And he turned around, he looked at me, and he winked, and he goes, you just watch this, Billy. And I went, 10 bucks, you miss. And he goes, you're on. And he, had it, he actually had the ball set up sideways, not aimed at the, at the sticks. They were 10 metres out, three metres in. He kicks it. It goes parallel to the try line. And then like a boomerang, takes a right hand, turns straight across the black dot. I'll throw my hands up. He turned around and went, you owe me 10 bucks. <laughs> and running back to the halfway, there's about 28 seconds on the clock. So there's going to be a kickoff, but it's no use. I just turned around and went, that'll do us, boys. Hold <laughs> on. To the sheds. Uh, referee's going, what are you doing? There's still 20. I said, mate, mate, we're finishing on that. That was gold. <laughs> we're done. We're out of here. Oh, I love it. Imagine if you did that now. Just common sense, right? Common sense. What, what a great way to finish. Oh, great yeah. story. Great story. It was I paid the $10 too. Yeah. I gave him the Amazing. 10 bucks. Uh, yeah, what could have been if if he didn't have the challenges he had away from the game and clearly on game day at times too because I think you look back now and some of the uh, challenges he's had with his mental health clearly yeah. impacted uh, how he played, but yeah, when he was at his best, unbelievable. Oh, just brilliant, and he would lead them around. And then the king, the king was doing things where I'm looking at him and listening to him, and thinking, what 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 is he doing? And then three plays later, what he had set up was coming into play into fruition, and he he was doing things on the field. And then when it when it was time, and we've all seen it in state of origin, when it was time to step up and say, right up, I need to do something for my team, my state my jersey, bang, he did it, and away he went. And that's when you just marvelled at the bloke and went, wow. And then it was so inspirational that everybody just said, we're with you, and away Queensland went. Yeah, and that's how they've been ever since. Mm. Um, is there uh, any other stories that come to mind from dealing with players that uh, either moments of tension or moments of uh, comedy like that? Yeah, Gordy and I had... Gordy and I, uh, Jeff Tuvey, we always had our thing. We, we, can, we all see the send-off of Gordon Tallis in 2000. Um, he still says that there was a knock-on, I think, by Kamali and Terry Hill. I, I, watched the, I watched the replay the other day, Bill. It looks like a knock-on to me, but I don't care because I'm a New South fan. Don't <laughs> let a knock-on interfere, a great game. <laughs> anyway, I didn't think there was a knock-on. So we're playing on, and he's he's yelling at me. Um, what about the knock-on? You've missed the knock-on. You are kidding, mate. There's a knock-on. I'm saying, shut up and just play. The game's gone. Anyway, as we're running down the field, he goes, mate, you are a worse referee than Stephen Clark. And I went, you're going to the bin for that. <laughs> Ryan Girdler scores in the corner. He's coming at me like the name, Raging Bull. Absolutely coming at me, and then he just unloaded. You are an F and cheat and C, and I turn around and went, Whoa, why you go? Just go. Not even going to talk to you. Just go. Um, you call me. You call me the cheat, boy. You question my integrity. That's that's the. You're just going. I think 
seven players in my whole career either said the word cheat or inferred I was a cheat. Peter Jackson, John Opawati, Martin Bella, Jeff Toovey, Gordon Tallis, all went, all got sent. See you later. Um, 2002, Gordon Tallis, State of Origin, absolutely flat out. State of Origin is like racing a car around Mount Panorama compared to an NRL game, which is racing your own domestic vehicle. Yep. That's the difference in speed. And this game is absolutely flat chat, and it's just before half time. And Gordy's going, I've got to talk to you, Bill. I've got to talk to you. No, not now, Gordy. Got to talk to you. Got to talk to you. Not now, Gordy. Scrum. He comes over. I went, he bends over and he's going, ah, 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 ah. I went, Gordy, what do you want? And he goes, Mate, how fast is this game? And I went, <laughs> it's state of origin, Gordy. They're always this fast. He goes, Any chance you can give me a 10 minute break? Don't <laughs> make the next tackle and I'll get rid of you for 10. He went and made the tackle before half time and put him in the bin for 10 minutes. No way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. There was something else that came to mind then when you were talking about. Uh, Jeff Toovey, pound for yeah. pound, toughest little bloke, um, great footballer, pain in the backside to referee, always chipping at you, always. I gave a penalty to Manly one day. He was the halfback, and I've gone. And he turned around and gave me an absolute gobful. And I looked down at him and said, you got the penalty. And he looked at my arm and then he goes, okay, we'll save that spray for next time. And he got a good penalty. Um, great player, probably pound for pound, the toughest bloke on the field that I refereed. Yeah, I can't be too much disagreement with that. And he, uh, he a short fella, but tough as. Um, oh. How did you then go from you, you hit retirement you said it left a hole. Um, actually, I don't even think, think you've probably answered that. Like, what what was? How did you fill that hole initially once you did retire? Um, very difficult. I remember I took my boys to State of Origin in two thousand and four, and we're sitting at the stadium, and I had a coffee and a bucket of chips, and it was twenty minutes from kickoff, and I turned around to my boys and said, "This is all wrong." And I went, what do you mean, Dad? And I said, well, I've just refereed the last 12 State of Origins in a row and I am now sitting here for the 13th with a coffee and a bucket of chips 20 minutes from out and I should be warming up. I should be in there warming up right now. And that's how I felt. I felt um, empty gutted. And so much so that at at one stage here in 2004, I contemplated um, a comeback. It was always the wrong. It was always the wrong decision. But there was a one stage where I think, I've got to go back. I've retired too early. I can go and do this. It was a fleeting moment. Got it out of my system very quickly. But there was one stage I did because it just felt, boy, I've been in in this for so long and it's been my life and full time and everything. And all of a sudden the training stops, the camaraderie stops with them. That um, discipline of being there at a certain time and everything stops. And that was very difficult to deal with. So after contemplating a uh, comeback, which I'm sure many, well, not sure, many have contemplated or done, then what? Like, were you were you able then to press on? Did you have moments of, like, dark times there when you were like, well, what am I going to do now? Like, I've just, like, lost purpose, sort of, that sort of feeling? Um, not, not so much lost purpose or anything. I, I, think it was, I think it was good that it was a fleeting thought and that I did give it some you know, some discussion, spoke to my wife about it, 
Excuse me. Oh, she's turned around and just gone, oh, no. no. You know, after everything she'd been through, she's just thinking, no, we can't go back down that track. But I think by just having that fleeting thought really defined that it was it. It's done. It is dead set done. And I think that was a good thing. And when I look back, there's a lot of people that have, like footballers and that, that have made comebacks. And the comeback is, you know, it's like a movie. The sequel is never as good as the first one. And I just feel that it was good to think about it and talk about it, but then bang, no, stupid idea, Bill. Why did you even contemplate that? Get on with it. And again, I think I did what I always did in life. Done, move it aside, walls there, move on. That is now history. And so it was, okay, what's the next part? What do I do now? Cops are finished, they're gone, referees gone, what do I do now? And that was probably the big thing. Where do I go from here? And that's the scary part because you've been doing those things full time and now you've got to say, okay, what else am I going to do? Cops out of school, into refereeing, and then I've got all these other skill sets and everything, but, boy, where do they fit? And I found that out pretty quick too when I did go to a couple of those agencies and just put myself out there, you know, for for jobs. And I remember one of them turned around and when we finished the discussion, just turned around and went, wow, Bill, I don't know. He said, I don't know what to do with you. He said, you have got all these skills, but normally we get somebody who is HR, somebody is IT, somebody is this, truck driver, whatever, um, and we put them into that pigeonhole and then we get them a job. He goes, I, I don't know what we're going to do with you, mate. He said, you could probably go and do them all and not be great at them, but, wow, he said, I don't know where we're going to go from here. And unfortunately, Perry Haddock, um, ex-halfback from St. George, Cronulla in Illawarra, lives around the corner. He always came up with this idea in the 90s about Oztag and came around and saw me and helped, I helped write the rule book. Had nothing to do with him. He got the game up and running and everything. But he used to always say to me, when are you going to retire? I need someone to give me a break and take over my game. And so that when I did finish, I then gave him the call and um, he turned around and said, I've just seen you. You just retired. You were going to get a call from me. You're up. And so I've been with him ever since. Awesome. So good. Um, Even when I went back to the NRL as an assistant coach and then the head coach in 11 and 12, I was still running the Oztag tournaments and still doing part-time work for him. Yeah, cool. What have you learnt about Oztag, which is dealing with everyday people and still an elite part of it, which I know you're passionate about as well. But what have you learned from transitioning from sort of in that public eye then back to something that's more grassroots? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think because I came up through grassroots refereeing and everything and I'm, and I'm back there now and I still jump on the field and referee. Yeah. And players get a bit of a buzz out of that going. Oh, yeah. When the young ones, when I referee the younger ones, they just look and go, who's this bloke? They wouldn't have a clue. But you know, some of the older blokes and everything who know get a bit of a buzz out of it. Um but I just like dealing with people and I like dealing with people at grassroots level and seeing what they're doing. And because of my role as general manager and we've got licensees out there running their competitions in Oztag in all the different areas, it's dealing with them and helping them make sure that their competitions are run the best that they can be. And, yeah, there's a part of due diligence and making sure that they're doing the right things when it comes to safety issues and risk assessments and all that sort of thing, but it's more so helping them build their competitions and make those competitions the best they can for their players playing in them. And I really enjoy that. And 
I'm doing a lot of that even in this lockdown. You know, I'm on the phone, I'm ringing him up saying, hi, guys, we're not playing at the moment. How are you? What's what's yeah, doing? Yeah, awesome. Um, awesome. Have you got contingency plans in place because we don't know when the government's going to say community sport is back on? And when they do, we want to be ready. So let's start working out in what weeks, what would you do? Six-week comp, eight-week comp, ten-week comp. Get all those things in place. And so still dealing with them and making phone calls every day. You know, I walk up and down out the front, headphones on, on the phone, having a yak with them. So I enjoy that. I enjoy dealing with those people. Clearly, the, the theme that, that I've heard through this call is that the best, the best that you can be, the best that they can be, it seems to be a real theme the whole way through. For those who are listening, what, what's the best advice you could give someone to be the best they can be at their chosen field? Always said it's C and D, commitment and your dedication. If you are going to do something, you, you put that commitment in, you dedicate yourself to doing it to the best of your ability. Don't do anything by halves. Um, don't cut corners. One of the things that I see with kids when you say to them, um, run around the oval or, you know, when you're, you're training at the local footy team or something like that, and you say to the kids, run around the oval. The one thing I look for is which kid runs to the corners because all the other kids cut around the corners and they come in five, ten metres around the corner and so they end up making it an oval. But you say to the kids, I want you to run around the park. I want to see the kid that gets the 70 metres in and gets the 100 metres in and gets the 70 metres in. And this kid, so if it's a 300 metre around the track, this kid's doing 280, 290, and I want to see the kid that's doing the 300. He's not cutting the corners. And that's that commitment and dedication. Um, that's what I like to see. And it doesn't matter whether it's footy, refereeing, uh, your job at work, driving a vehicle, an Uber, whatever. If I was driving an Uber, I would have the cleanest car and the best presented car. And I'll drive that safer than anybody else could drive it. That would be my commitment to my passenger. Love and it. I just think that's 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 what you take into life. That's what you do. Brilliant. So good, Bill. Um Two more questions, if that's okay. One, uh, who did you follow as a footy fan as a youngster? South Sydney, the Rabbits. Oh, cool. I lived in, grew up in Canley Heights, Parramatta yep. District. Um, but just like any kids, I wanted to be a winner. And when I was five, six, seven years of age in 65, 66, 67, go back and have a look at – it was probably the best team running around then, the Rabbits, red and green South Sydney. Um, so I followed the Rabbits. Stayed with the rabbits following them, even through when they went through dismal areas, you know, in some of the 70s and 80s and were pretty poor. Um, and then I started having to referee them. And I remember my mum said to me when I did South Sydney and North Sydney at, at uh, Redfern Oval in 1986, and she said, how are you going to go about refereeing your team? And I went, they're not my team anymore, mum, but we'll see. So out I go. Craig Coleman, Mario Fennick, Mick Podgy, and Neil Baker absolutely give it to me, absolutely ripped into me. There was no microphones, no earpieces, they, no microphones on the sidelines that would capture what was saying, what was being said on the field, and they give it to me. And when I come off and mum said, so how did you go? How would you deal with it? And I went, mum, I hate them. <laughs> they absolutely give it to me. They called me everything under the sun out there, and that's why I was blowing penalties left, right, centre. And I said, you know what, mum? I'm going to hate them all. And if I do that, 
Brilliant. So when I went out there, it was a red jersey versus a green jersey, Australia. Green jersey versus New Zealand, black jersey. And that's the way I went through the rest of my career. Brilliant. Yeah, there you go. That's a good way to uh, don't don't play favourites anywhere. <laughs> Mate, I can- you know what? And, and I was absolutely, I was on Triple M. We're at the grand final in 2014 and I was absolutely tickle pink for South to win it. But I wasn't there going, go, go. But when they won it, I just quietly just turned around and said, that's a very good win for them. I was very pleased for the Rabbits. And that little bit in here as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I don't imagine you could have done it any other way. Like if you if you go in there, you've, you've just got to completely separate yourself. So um, you clearly did that. So well done. Yeah. Amazing. Last thing, uh, our friend Tappy, who introduced me to you, oh, I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a New South Wales Blues uh, presentation dinner or something. I, I um, think nearly 10 years. Sorry, say again? I think nearly probably 10 years, would it be? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. A long time ago. Probably, yeah. Um, but he, he mentioned to me that, because uh, he, he's in a band, he mentioned to me that uh, occasionally you're known to get up there and have a sing with him. Do you enjoy <laughs> that? It's Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. And to tell you the truth, when I've jumped up on the stage, especially the first time I jumped up with Tappy's band, which was Midlife Crisis, and I also jump up and I'm a part of Eric Groth and the Gurus. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, send me out to do that 99 grand final in front of 107,000, 108,000 people. And, yeah, there's a little bit of nerves, but, bang, that's my job. Boy, when I jumped up for the first time on stage with a band and you're looking at the punters, and start singing, mate. I've never been more nervous in all my life. I don't think. Absolutely asking myself, but yeah, I loved it. Absolutely love it. And when everyone gives me an opportunity now and says, you know, Tappy says, mate, uh, we want you to come along and sing a few songs at our gig and everything. Oh, I'm just, mate. What day? What time? I'm there. I love yeah. it. It was on the bucket list. And I suppose I didn't get to be a pilot. I ended up taking on the cops. I would love to have been a rock star. <laughs> and I don't think anyone who watched your NRL career would would uh, disagree with that either. Um, I just remember, did you ever see Robbie Williams at Nedsworth? It's um, it's a CD, but he, he actually did that same concert here in Australia. But when you watch that concert at Nedsworth in the UK, there's one stage there he says, I think there's 150,000, 200,000 people there, and he says, put one hand in the air, put your other hand in the air, now jump, and 200,000 people jumped. And to me, I just looked at that and went, if you can do that, you've made it. You have yeah. dead set made it. That is gold. Yeah, I love that. Um, I did notice that just before we jumped on here, you were feeling a bit nervous. That's what I felt from my end anyway. So uh, it's good to see that you can still um, have those moments of, of adrenaline. And, uh, mate, I really appreciate you having this chat with me. I've absolutely loved it. I know from the interaction we've had from the audience today that they've loved it as well. I really appreciate it, Bill. Thanks, mate. Been an absolute pleasure, Ian. All the best to everybody and good luck to everyone out there. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.